Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. I'm really glad that you're here again this morning. Hello to our online audience, wherever you might be today. We're really glad you're joining us uh, this morning. Uh, you may be joining us in the evening or some other time, but we're glad you're with us today. Uh, we, as Joanna just prayed, we're now in uh, week two in our series out of Philippians. So if you've got your Bible this morning, a hard copy, if you've got a, a smartphone or, or an, I, an, an iPad, we've got a Wi-Fi in here. We'd love you to connect one way or the other uh, to Scripture this morning. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 around verse 12, and, and we're going to get ready to hear God's Word today. I want to start with a question. Uh, and I, I don't want a, an illicit response, actually. Um, we'll do that in, in a minute. Are you prepared to hear from God this morning? Well, okay, they responded. No, really. Did you take time to prepare your heart? Did you take time to listen, to pray? Even in the craziness with, if you have many children like we did, did you just say, oh God, I'm ready to hear? My suspicion is a lot of us here and online didn't. And yet what God is about to say to us is critical, it's important, it's significant. So I'm going to take a moment so we all can get ready. So why don't you join me just for one more moment of prayer and then we'll get going. Jesus, a simple prayer this morning. Some of us here or online don't know you. Some of us are very close to meeting you. Others of us have just met you. A lot of us have walked with you for a while. But life is crazy, it's busy, it's distracting, it's broken. And just for a moment, we'd like to say this morning, we really do want to hear. No matter the cost, no matter what you ask of us, we're ready. So Spirit of Jesus Christ, come and do your work today. Because it matters and it lasts. In Jesus' name, amen. Why does joy elude so many of us? I mean, we're in a season of joy, right? This is a year where we believe God wants us to speak about and anticipate and experience joy. And yet the truth is, many of us as followers of Jesus have no joy or our joy is eroded at best. Well, many of us spend our life trying to get joy, which is the problem. We don't see joy, Christian joy that is, as a heaven-sent gift. And many of us, when we get that gift, do not walk in it once we have been given it by Jesus. Again, let me remind you, it was our master Jesus that said that everything would not be okay in this world. As we wait for what is coming, everything isn't going to be okay. Sin, evil, injustice, and death itself are still all around. In this world, Jesus promised us there will be many troubles. When's the last time you claimed that verse as a Christian? In this world, he said, I guarantee you things are going to go wrong. And like we found out last week, the fallout are joy killers, worry, stress, fear, darkness. Worry is wondering if something is or is not going to happen. Stress is trying to deal with something that is out of your control. Fear is that uneasiness over possible danger or evil or pain touching you or your family. And darkness, well, darkness is the scary one. Darkness is fear experienced. It is actually when darkness evil, pain, disease, loss, touch you. And yet Jesus promised something more, something more powerful, more life-changing, more unnatural. Through his birth and his life, through his death and his resurrection, through his ascension and his current intercession and the sending of the Holy Spirit, joy can not only be written about or sung about or fantasized for, joy can be experienced if you are a Christian. 
Like I preached last week, and please hear this again today. We are not called to live under our circumstances, but, and this is a big one, we are not called to live above them either. So many churches and so many pastors and bishops and priests tell their community, you're a Christian now. If you just read your Bible more and pray, you can live above your circumstances. No. We are not called to live under the domination of them, nor are we called to live above them. We are called to walk right through them, but we're empowered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We may not live under, nor may we avoid fear, worry, stress, or darkness. That sets us up for failure in our faith walk. We are called to walk in suffering with Jesus. Again, back to that grand relationship passage where Jesus simply says, if you know me, if you've encountered me in a personal way and you know that you've known me because you are now obeying me more and more over time, then this is my promise to you. These things, John 15, 11, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. The second person of the Trinity, the living God of heaven and earth, found in flesh, says to us this morning that his joy, which is eternal, can be experienced, and it can be experienced in a full way in this broken life. But the question is, how does that come into effect when walking and suffering, or dealing with past suffering that still haunts us and has power in your everyday life? Well, joy comes when he redeems suffering back, when he reuses suffering, when he clarifies our suffering. Suffering is one of the strongest places where Christian joy is produced. Yeah, let's stop right now and let's be honest this morning about suffering. I love when one author thinking about this passage penned these words. Perhaps the most harmful detour in all of the interpretation of this passage would be to misconstrue Paul's approach to suffering. Please listen carefully. This passage and Philippians and the Bible contains no implicit claim that suffering is good that God is always its author, that the mysterious paradox that surrounds suffering suddenly gets solved, that Christians should plaster smiles on their faces when they experience suffering or pretend that hardship is just a great joyful thing. Hooray, I'm suffering for Jesus. No. His joy, Paul's that is, is not because of the affliction or even in spite of it, but because Christ is being preached. The suffering is real for Paul, and nothing Paul is about to say says that the suffering is good. Instead, in this passage, God triumphs over suffering by using it as a tool to accomplish his goals which last. Let me say this another way. Most time, God is not the author of suffering, nor does he say that we should love suffering. It is our sin much of the time that brings suffering into our life, our choices that actually bring destruction. Or it is the sinful choices of others that crash into our lives. It is the presence of Lucifer and his fallen angels. It is living in a world that is marred and crying out. Suffering cannot be avoided. The question is this morning, do we ever see God's hand? Do we see that God actually wants to buy back the brokenness to bring his kingdom onto earth? Again, Paul was not sitting in some ivory tower He suffered, and how he even got to Rome, where he writes this letter from jail, increases his suffering. One person summarized Paul's life at this moment this way. Speaking of Paul, he says, let me reintroduce you again. This is a man who wanted to go to Rome as a preacher in order to testify his faith before the Roman emperor Nero of his day. 
Instead, he wound up in Rome as a prisoner. He was a Roman citizen with every right to appeal to Caesar and wait an audience before him. Instead, he was illegally arrested in Jerusalem, misrepresented before the court, incorrectly identified as an Egyptian renegade, entangled in the red tape of the political machinery of the day. And finally, when he got the trip across the Mediterranean, he encountered a storm and got shipwrecked. When he finally got to Rome, he was incarcerated and forgotten about for two whole years. If you want to look up the word victim in the dictionary, Paul's picture should appear right there. And yet this man, who was a genuine victim, not a set-up victim, a real one, writes the most joyous letter in the New Testament to his friends from jail. And the question is why? Because Paul walked with Jesus in a way that many of us even long-time Christians have not discovered yet. So back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. The church in Philippi had heard Paul was in jail. They were really worried, deeply concerned, and they responded to him. But his response to them back gives us so much insight into his trust in God and his understanding of suffering. Paul starts talking about his present circumstances in jail this way in Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters... That what has actually happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Listen, he says, I may be in chains, but the gospel is going out unchained. I am, I am fettered, but the spirit of God and his gospel are unfettered. No, this is not fair. And I'm not in a crisis of faith. I don't hate my life. There's actually no pity party going on. Actually, I want to share something. I have real joy. I know it sounds crazy, but being in jail, ready? has given me access to a whole group of people that I never would have had the chance to share the good news about Jesus. I've actually got to share with them that Jesus loves them too. Let me tell you, verse 13, as a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Yes, I'm in Rome, but now part of Caesar's own extended bodyguard and many others not only have heard the name of Jesus for the first time, they actually know why he's come. I took some time this week to wonder, how many guards did he talk to? Did any part of the royal family become Christians? Possibly. Government officials, prison wardens, the list goes on and on. But here is a man who understood the power of the gospel and why his suffering was even secondary to that. But before we keep going, see that little phrase, in chains for Christ? In Greek, it actually reads, I am a man in Christ in chains. Or another person says, I am a man in Christ, and my chains are part of the manifestation of my discipleship as one who is participating in Christ's own suffering. This not only carries the idea that he is suffering in prison for Jesus' sake, and there's some injustice involved. He is actually participating in Christ's suffering by being in prison. And never forget that Jesus' suffering was central in the advancement of God's redemptive work. As one wrote, it was the worst evil through whom God affected the greatest good for humanity. You want proof? We're sitting in Ajax 2,000 years later singing to Jesus because God redeemed suffering. Amen. We are the product of God redeeming suffering. Think about the cross. Some of you are saying, John, what are you saying? Well, here it is. Every time you suffer in a small or great way because of your relationship with Jesus, 
Every time you've lost friends, every time people have mocked you, every time your family's rejected you, every time you've lost a job because really you shared the gospel or you said, I will not slander at work or I will not cheat at work, every time, and here's the key word, you have genuinely suffered. Now, some of you have not suffered genuinely. Some of you have been jerks for Jesus. You know, I'm suffering for, no, you're just a jerk. That's not what persecution is. No, right? Have you ever met these Christians? You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, I'm suffering. Really? God's going to, mm-hmm, okay. We're talking about genuine suffering. Now, in our culture, we're not incarcerated. We don't lose jobs a lot of times. Some of us have. But every time you've genuinely suffered by look, by word, by action, you join in Jesus' own suffering. There is power there. There is joy there. There is influence in the darkness. Remember when Paul, before he met Jesus, was on the road and he was going to incarcerate other Christians, Jesus appears to him. And what does he say to Paul? Why, Saul? Why are you persecuting who? Me. Every time someone attacks you for your faith, never forget they are actually touching and attacking the living Jesus. From suffering comes resurrection. From suffering comes the rare thing called mentorship. He says in verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Do not forget again, this is during the reign of Nero. His madness is about to peak. The church was about to fall under suspicion and persecution. In a few years, his demonic rage would lash out at the church for the first time. If you know history, in 64 AD, a famous Roman fire broke out. Thousands and thousands were affected. Much of Rome was burned to the ground, and the government and people blamed Nero for the fire. Nero, as one wrote, was a man desperate to be popular. Therefore, he needed to find a scapegoat that he could blame the fire on. And he found it in an obscure new religious sect called Christians. And so many Christians were arrested. And this is where these terrible things began. They were thrown to live lions and tigers and eaten alive in front of thousands of people at the circus. Many others, just like us, were crucified. And many others, terribly, were actually burned alive, becoming human lanterns, serving as lights in Nero's gardens, while Nero mingled around watching the crowds. It is that brutal persecution which immortalized Nero as the first version of the Antichrist in the eyes of the Christian church. See, this was coming, and the church knew it. Yet despite the growing darkness, because of Paul's example, many, many Christians started to share their own stories of meeting Jesus. They saw Paul was in prison, and even there he was suffering and sharing the story. So he did, and they did too. There is such power in courageous mentors where the gospel has more power than worry, fear, and even darkness. And yet that's never the whole story, is it? You ever visited another family or another church for an hour and a half, and you're like, Oh, it's so much better here. You ever done that? You're all lying. Yes, you have. <laughs> Every time I go to another church as a pastor, I'm like, oh, everyone loves each other more here. Their facility is so much better. Oh, it's so awesome. And then you what? Talk to someone. See, it's, there's no greener grass. It just where you water, it gets greener, period. It's so true. You go to another family, you go to another church, and you realize it's not easy or straightforward there either. Yes, the gospel was going forward. Yes, the church in Rome was growing. Yes, Paul had even redeemed suffering through God's help, but there was family problems, and nothing is new under the sun. Listen to this. It is true, he says, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, suspo- uh, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now, before I go to the family breakdown, I just want you to see that word I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul is sitting, rotting in jail for three reasons. He was declaring to the Roman world that Nero is not the son of God, nor was he Lord. Jesus is Lord. He was there because he declared to his old friends, the Jewish Sanhedrin, that they had missed the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. And if they wanted to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had to find him through the face of Christ. And he was there by the sovereignty of God because God wanted to plant a church at the heart of the urban, effectual culture called Rome. And so Paul is there and he's suffering. But in the middle of suffering and church growth, there is family trouble. Now, it's not a divorce. It's like a painful separation was emotively alive and well. And this was an issue of motive, not orthodoxy. Paul is not talking about false teachers here, those that appear Christian and are not. He's talking about fellow Christians, and they are personality-driven or cultural rivals that belong to good, biblical, Christ-centered churches. It was Stuart Briscoe that wrote, whatever you may think of Paul, he was no alabaster saint sitting on some pedestal. The real Paul had a temper. He got heated. His feelings got hurt. He was no computerized theological machine churning out inspired writings, but a very warm human individual who needed as much love as the next person, actually probably some more. You can't hurt a computer's feelings. You can't grieve a theological concept, but you sure can destroy a man. Paul was destructible, but he was never destroyed. And it wasn't for a lack of someone trying. The perspective he had allowed him to discover, everyone ready? That he didn't really mind what happened to him as, because he understood that the gospel was more important than the man preaching it. Now on a very personal level, this text brought real healing to me in the last little while. In the last six years in public and private, I have personally been slandered by strangers and friends. I've been attacked personally. My motives have been attacked. My preaching has been attacked. I've been told I don't preach the gospel. My theology has been attacked. This church has been attacked. Our core values have been attacked. And actually, some of our secondary views have been attacked. Over a long period, this deeply affected me. And as I reflected this week, I think I would probably use the clinical word depression. I never at 30 years old, when I started leading this church, thought this would happen, especially with friends. I never thought that people I baptized and loved and and fought alongside with would do this. Then after a long period of deep hurt and question, anger, pain, and I would probably put in parenthesis a little paranoia, I came across this passage in a devotional time, and I had an encounter with Jesus, and he asked me very directly something I wasn't expecting. He said to me, where, John, is your joy? Where's your joy gone? And of course, I started listing everything. But you know what they did. You know, I'm trying to be faithful, right? And he stopped and he said, you know, I love them more than you do. They're my children too. They're preaching, I remind you. And by the way, more people are growing in their faith and others have become Christians too. And then he said, it's time for you to have your joy back again. And it was given. It's like my eyes changed almost. I I had joy. I even had joy I used to have for them again. Now, before the encounter ended, though, I need to share publicly, because this will be podcasted, that Jesus quickly, as he always does, pointed something else that I wasn't expecting. He says, you know, you may have not started a lot of this, 
But at points in your private and public life, you've become what you hate. You've become jealous, right? Angry, celebrating when others that hurt you are struggling in their context. And I had to say yes. How easy it is for any of us to become what we despise in others. And then he freed me with this passage. And this really got deep into my soul ever since September 11th, uh, 2011, that Sunday, since Jesus has started to do a prolonged new thing, bit by bit, individual by individual across our church. Now, I just want to stop and say that on February 11th, we're going to have an extended worship service on, Sunday, on a Saturday night for two hours. And we're just going to do this. We, we haven't done this uh, actually ever that I know about like this where we're going to give open mic time for people to start sharing how Jesus has profoundly confronted them and changed them. So far as pastors, we have at least seven, 70 documented stories where Jesus has shown up and done a profound thing. And I'm just here, forget the pastor title, I'm just here to say I'm not perfect, but man, since I've encountered Jesus, I have joy again. And it's a good thing to be free. It's a good thing to be free. Actually, I think this is the prayers that we've been praying for two years for personal renewal and corporate revival and coming awakening. See, Paul understood something I didn't get as a young pastor. He understood that the centrality of the gospel matters more than me, my looks, my clothing, my education, my reputation, how many friends I have on Twitter or Facebook. It just doesn't matter. Paul had been freed of being a narcissistic leader and had a soft and large heart for others, even family members that I'm sure he would have wanted to call fourth cousins by this moment. But that's why he could write in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way where their false motives are true, Christ is preaching, because of this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to have joy. Does this mean that we shouldn't care about people's motives? No, of course we should. I'm really quite tired of people being bullied by other Christians and using theology as the cover to be mean. That's not what we're talking about. But Paul shows that the gospel is given, and it's not even embraced, by the way, that it's just given. It gives him joy. He says, I leave all that personal agenda stuff to God. One person says the fellowship of the modern church lies in tatters of rivalry over turf, competition for money and influence, and petty theological disagreements. When we move from Paul's time into ours, how we need to apply the healing medicine of Paul's perspective to the divisions among Christians that touch all our lives way too much. Well, he's not done. After saying such a bold and somewhat crazy thing, he then actually connects this idea. He says, for I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and God's provision through the spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. It's interesting in the book of Philippians, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who introduced you to Jesus. If you do not have a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit, you are missing out so much as a Christian. Why? He's the one who introduced you to Jesus. He's the one who gave you faith to know Jesus. He's the one who brings Jesus into your life. He's the one who makes us like Jesus. He's the one who convicts you of sin. He's the one who allows us access to Jesus, to hear Jesus, to worship Jesus, to be broken before Jesus, and to find joy in Jesus. Without Jesus, the Spirit is not sent, and without the Spirit, Jesus Jesus is not in your life. The Spirit of Christ is the greatest gift to us as the church. Why? Because He brings Jesus into our hearts. But there's so much more. I never caught this when I read this time and time again, but one scholar helped me when he wrote, Paul in Greek is suggesting, ready everyone? Tune in. 
that the presence of the Holy Spirit is supplied to Paul through the prayers of the Philippians. In some mysterious way, those prayers are linked with God's furnishing of the Spirit to him, and together they will provide the courage for him to stand up. Here's what you need to understand. Ready, everyone? Our prayer life for each other. Connect group leaders, take notes. Your prayer life for your connect group, your prayer life for C4 Church is directly connected to the amount of presence and power of the Holy Spirit, which also means that the lack of prayer means a lack of personal and palpable presence of the work of Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ Jesus. So many of us cry out, Jesus, I want to know you more. Jesus, do a greater work in Durham. Jesus, revive our church. Are you praying? Prayer equals the presence of the Spirit. There is a mysterious bond. God is sovereign. I have no issue, but he chooses to work through us in prayer. He says this, the Spirit of Christ is given because the Philippian church is praying. Now, he's asking for deliverance in his case, and he knows deliverance will come in one of two ways. Either he'll live and Christ will be glorified, or he'll die and Christ will be glorified. Deliverance for him is done. He's just saying, Spirit of God, give me the courage to walk this out. The other thing we see here is utter humility. Think about this. This is Paul. This is the superstar, the ultimate quarterback. This is the Billy Graham of Billy Graham's. Billy Graham's nothing compared to Paul. And this guy turns around to a bunch of normal Christians and says to them, please, please, would you pray for me? I need you to pray so I have courage. It was the great Greek bishop, Chrysostom, who preached almost 2,000 years ago, probably 1,500, 1,600 years ago. Do you see the humility of Paul? where he understands that their supplication will give him courage. Oh, the humility of such a great leader. He says, I eagerly expect and hope I will no be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in life or death. And then here's the uh-oh moment. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Those 12 little words is very, very dangerous. It's a serious moment. If you weren't expecting to hear from Jesus this morning, it's about to take place. Listen to what Paul said, and he didn't say it because it sounded good. I live for Jesus. My singular passion is Jesus. And when I die, however or whenever, it's a great, great day. Why? Jesus. One pen, their problem and ours is a strong tendency to speak this, but not to live this way. One wonders what local churches might truly look like in a postmodern age if we once again were people of one singular passion. Too often it is for us, and listen closely, suburban church, for me to live as Christ, plus work, plus leisure, plus accumulating wealth, plus relationships, fine. But the truth, if it was known, all too much often the plus factor actually is the primary purpose. For me to live as work, for me to live as my children, for me to work is money. For me to live is money. For me to work is fill in the blank. But our progress and our joy regarding the gospel are contingent on whether or not Jesus is our primary singular passion. And this, surely, he writes, is a more infinitely greater option than self-gratification. Let me bring it home this way. Jesus has to be more important to you and me and more influential than your money, than your time, than your family. You need to love Jesus more than your family. You need to love Jesus more than your spouse if you're married. He needs to be more important than your children, more important than your friends, more important than your online presence, more important than the education you want or have. 
He's got to be more important than your looks or your sexuality, more important than your influence, more important than your history, more important than your hopes or your future, more important and has to influence your suffering, more important than your lost dreams, your doubts, and your service. Jesus is why we live on earth, and death itself is a gain. Why? Because we get to meet the one we love. In each category, the question is this. Are all those things wrong? No. None of them are per se wrong, but the question is, what, does brings, what brings God more glory? What gives Jesus more glory? What would further Jesus' agenda with your children, with your family, with your money, with your sexuality, with your online presence? What would bring Jesus joy? Not you, Jesus. Some of you are saying, John, this is crazy. What about me? What about my wants and dreams and hopes? Don't I matter? Of course you do. But the more you give in and over to slavery to Jesus, the more joy you will have, and the more joy you will have, your wants and dreams and hopes will actually change because you will know that heaven lasts and this stuff doesn't. This is the architect of revival. Easily sung, rarely said. He says, if I'm going to go living on in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. Let's be honest. I desire to to depart and be with Christ. It's far better, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for the progress and joy in your faith. So through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Here's the point, everyone. Paul's joy lies in his perspective. Paul's joy lives in his singular devotion. Paul's joy comes from heaven. Paul's joy comes from seeing the world through what helps Jesus' name, what helps Jesus' work, what helps Jesus' will, his wants, and his desires. Paul knows that one person, and there's only one look and one voice that can satisfy the deepest longings of his heart, and his name is Jesus. No one else can do what Jesus can do. So as we gathered and we started and we prayed a dangerous prayer at the beginning... Here's our question. What is Jesus saying to us and to you right now about suffering and joy? Well, here's a few things and we'll end. If you want your joy back as a Christian, here's the first thing. Jesus would love to relieve you of your preoccupation with others. No more turf wars. Paul would not let worry, stress, fear, or self-pity or personal attacks, ready, become idols replacing God's powerful work in his life. The gospel goes forward, it goes forward through weak, broken people, and it seems strongest in suffering. Now, let's be honest. Everyone ready? You didn't want to do this, but you're going to. Everyone ready? What Christian do you not like? Because of their theology, their culture, their worldview, their hairstyle, their church style, I don't know, because they've hurt you? What church do you hate from your past? What Christian organization makes you all the time? Is it worth your joy? Is it worth your joy? Paul says very clearly, not mincing words, that others that knew Jesus and even probably loved him were still motivated by envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, and troublemaking. Yes to all of that. But then he said, Jesus is still at work. The gospel is still on the move. Here's the question. Church, do you want your joy back? Lay these people and organizations and churches down. Thank God that people are still becoming Christians and get your joy back again. Some of you have made those people, those churches, and I'm not even saying what they did was right to you. 
I'm not even saying this is just or unjust. I'm just saying to you this morning, whatever you have been through, if this is you, listen closely. It is not worth your joy. And not only that, people around you who are non-Christians are looking to see if you really have something different. And if you don't have joy that transcends suffering, you don't have anything different. So here's, ready? Here's what we're going to do. Right now, we're going to stop the service. We're going to ask the living God to show up. And some of us are going to surrender this right back to Jesus right now and get free. Because joy matters too much. So get in a posture of prayer, and we'll see what God does. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ Jesus, and we're not done yet. I would ask you to come upon us and us online. And this isn't applying to everyone, but some of us. I'd ask you, Spirit of Christ Jesus, to bring to mind people right now, by face or name, churches or Christian organizations that have done wrong things, right things. We have our opinions, but here's the point. God, it has robbed our joy. Now I ask Lord Jesus to begin to give joy to all of us again. And for you who are thinking about people, you need to lay them down with Jesus right now and say, I can't, my joy is not worth this. Let's do it. Trust him. Trust him. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He'll work everything out. Lay it down. And here's the hard prayer. Now thank God, if they're doing this, that they're still preaching the gospel and pray that God will keep using them. Lord, I pray this. I would ask again in Jesus' name for freedom to begin to take place over the next days, hours, weeks, and months for many of us who have just prayed. And all of God's people said, amen. Here's the second thing I want to say as we keep going, because we're going to respond in a few ways. Here's the second thing. You are going to suffer as a Christian. Hear this, everyone. This is the duh moment from 1980 for us. Paul would say, are you joking me? You're going to suffer as a Christian. You know that, right? He says, our symbol's a, a cross, right? Not a water fountain. You're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer for the gospel, So here's the thing. Are you looking for opportunity to preach the gospel in your suffering? We all have different chains here. Now, some of our suffering isn't related to the gospel. Some of us physically are suffering. Some of us are sick. Some of us are dying. Some of us are older than we used to be. You know this. Some of us are deeply emotionally suffering right now. Others of us are mentally. There are many of us right now that have mental illness among us right now. Many of us suffer sexually for a hundred reasons. Some of us are suffering financially. Some of us are so dry spiritually. Some of us are suffering in our families. Some of us are suffering with ourselves. The suffering is there. Here's the question, because it's not saying any of the suffering is good. Have you ever stopped and said to Jesus, even in the darkest hour, I give you this suffering, where can the gospel come out of this? Paul looked at his chains and could have said, this isn't fair, and it wasn't. But he turned around and said, I am chained, and it is unjust, and then looked around and said, God, give me such unnatural, bizarre joy that I'm going to tell those people who have chained me about you. God wants to redeem our suffering. He does not always want to heal us of it. We talked about it in that spiritual gift series. 
So here's the second thing. Have many of you actually said to Jesus in your suffering, and it may be extreme, how could the gospel go forward through my chains? It's a great question. So we're going to respond in prayer right now like this again. If you are suffering genuinely, even in, in your suffering because of injustice or just living in a messed up world, here's the thing. Have you ever and would you be willing to say to Jesus, I don't even get what I'm about to say, but could you use my suffering so others would meet Jesus? That's the redemption of suffering. It doesn't make sense. It's uncomfortable. It's weird. It's why it comes from heaven. So if that's you, pray this prayer. Jesus, here are my chains. List it to him. You know what they are. Physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual, financial. Just here they are. I suffer because of my decisions. I'm suffering because of other people's decisions. I'm suffering just because I live in a messed up world. But I would like you to take these chains and start using them so other people could find Jesus. God, I pray right now that you would brood over people praying this because there's so much pain and misunderstanding and question about this, but I would ask that you would begin to supernaturally, I'm asking this, to supernaturally take suffering in this church and that the gospel could go forward through this suffering where people go, how can you be like this and be suffering? And people go, I can't, but Jesus can. Redeem suffering so the gospel can go forward, I ask in the name of Christ. Two last things and I'm done. Amen to that. I want to remind you as one of your pastors here this morning, the power of prayer equals joy. Are you praying for others? Are you praying for God's will in people's life, in your life, no matter the cost? Are you praying for joy? Are you praying for me? Are you praying for the elders and staff in this church? Are you praying that we have joy? Are you praying that the spirit of Christ Jesus would come upon this house, this church, this community, and give us joy even in our suffering? I would like to commend you strongly. Pray, pray, and pray again. The spirit of Christ is needed in this church for personal renewal. He's needed for revival, and there will never be an awakening without him. Pray. Don't be fancy. Just pray. This church should be marked by prayer. Marked by prayer, and it's not yet. Joy comes from prayer. Joy comes from dealing with suffering. But here's the last thing, and I'm done. And Nikki, you can come up with the team. The truth is that Paul's heart comes from that one verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's hard to say, and I looked at this verse this week, and I said, I don't know how to preach this. I don't know how to bring this home. I don't know how to get this. I came across a quote this week that said, for me to live is money and to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame and die and be quickly forgotten. By the way, all of us are going to be forgotten in 150 years. For me to live is power and influence and to die is to lose both. For me to live is possessions and die and have nothing in my hands. I don't know how to preach this this morning. I, I don't. But all I can articulate is this that a real renewal in a Christian life and a real corporate revival where just normal, struggling Christians have a season of extended worship in connection with Jesus and a real awakening is when the phrase is true, for me to live is Jesus and when I die, it's even a bigger gain. So all I can end by saying is I want to pray this for us because I don't know how to articulate it. Because I think it takes a God thing with so many of us to even get in that place where we just say, yeah, life is more about Jesus than anything else. And death, if it happens, wow, all good, Jesus. 
I, that's all I can do. So as Nikki begins to lead us in this last song, I'm just going to pray this for our church, and we'll see what God does. So uh, let's pray. Um, why don't we stand if you want to, if you want to get ready to respond to that way. Lord, um, I'm not sure even how to say this, so I just want to pray out of your word. For me to live is Christ. Do that in me. I'm so distracted, especially living in this call. I'm just so distracted. I have so much. I pray that you would give people a trust and a love for you so we could say for me to live is Jesus. And I pray too that when we face death, young or old, that we would have confidence because we will not die alone like so many do. We are gonna encounter the living one. I pray for personal renewal in this church that person after person starts experiencing this verse. I pray corporately for this church. I pray for a season, at least a season, that there is such a love for Jesus that we've never experienced in 25 years corporately that this verse describes us. And I pray now in faith, and I do because I know it takes sovereignty to do this. God, would you work so powerfully in Durham that these words are uttered by people who hate you right now, who are far from you, who are lost, who don't believe. I pray that so many would meet you. I pray for so many to start meeting you in this area. I pray for atheists to meet you, agnostics to meet you, witches, Satanists. I pray for Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, Sikhs, those who are our cousins, the Jews, Muslims, those inventing their own spirituality, those going to chapters, those trusting in money, sex, and power. I just, I ask God that you'd come in such power in this area. The people would meet Jesus. And they'd say, for me to live is Christ. And now I can say to die is gain. Don't relent. Don't relent on this church. Do what you have to. Eternity is at stake. Spirit of Christ, I beg you to keep doing the work in me. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.